presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. Good evening. You are listening to Night Drift presented by Uvamet, and I'm Jim Perry. Coming to you tonight from my home studio in the hinterlands of the Oregon coast to the mothership. Alternative Talk 1150 AM, KKNW in Seattle, and streaming worldwide at nightdrift.com. Thank you for listening. If you're listening to this as a podcast on the Euphemet feed, you may be doing so from Bayshore, New York, Mumbai, India, Tainan City, Taiwan, Bucharest, Romania. It's why I often like to thank you for indulging me in how often topics on the show are Pacific Northwest focused. And a part of why that is is because I live here. Nightdrift broadcast here on AM radio in Seattle. But it's also because this place, this foggy, wet, mysterious stretch of land settled between two giant mountain ranges, holds the origin of so many of the topics we all can't stop exploring. Whether it's dogmen, Sasquatch, or UFOs, the Pacific Northwest is linked to our current understanding of this phenomenon as there have been events that have shaped our cultural perception and definition of what these things could be. Mysteries that still remain. Tonight, we explore one such event. It happened near a small island off of Tacoma, Washington, 75 years ago, and the ensuing investigation was so complex, so dynamic, that we need way more than an hour to even describe it. Its twists and turns illustrate the origin of the modern UFO. You know, two men attempted to encapsulate the mystery of this event and highlight what they felt were some of the most important elements of the case in an award-winning short film, The Maury Island Incident. They're also leading up efforts for a whole series of interactive and commemorative events here in the Pacific Northwest, and one of them will join us tonight to talk about the incident their film, and the events happening in which I will be present at, actually. It, so it was, you know, it was years ago that I fell down this particular rabbit hole. And since, its mystery has never left me. It's a really important case and study of the witness experience. One shrouded in doubt, paranoia, and unbelievable contact. So, as I am so in the weeds on this thing, I'm actually joined by liminal investigator Bex Atwood, for the duration to help sort this out. Bex, welcome back to Night Drift, my friend. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah, so Bex, real quick, imagine it's 1947, and the whole world is about to change. The modern UFO era will have kicked off. If you were there in 1947 and knew what would occur, what would you tell people to better prepare themselves for it? Oh my gosh, what would I tell them? First, I guess I would just say, get ready for a lot of, get ready for a lot of 
cover ups. <laughs> Get ready for a lot of people telling you you didn't see what you know you saw. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. A lot of you didn't see that. That was actually this. You are crazy. And then later, a lot of people corroborating exactly what you saw. And maybe that's you that's listening to this tonight. Have, have you seen something? 75 years after the summer of the saucers, have you seen a UFO? Have you seen a flying saucer? Do you live on Maury Island and have been witness to something strange? Are you familiar with this case? And what are your thoughts? You can call us right now and share your story. 888-298-5569 or email us at jim at euphemet.com. Use hashtag Nightdrift on Twitter. I'm Jim Perry with Bex Atwood. This is Nightdrift. We'll be right back after this. Follow Night Drift with Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
With Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, KKNW, Seattle. Now, here again is Jim. This week is the 75th anniversary of the birth of the modern UFO era. With it came flying saucers, conspiracy theories about aliens, and the men in black. And it all started right here on a tiny island in the Puget Sound. Before Roswell, there was Maury Island. I'm Jim Perry. Welcome back to Night Drift. I'm with liminal investigator and Night Drift reporter Bex Atwood tonight. Our guest burns flying saucers over the Puget Sound, lurked around small water-hugging communities in a gang dressed as men in black, and they are not done yet. On Wednesday, an event to celebrate 75 years of this madness, Steve Edniston is joining the show tonight. We'll see if we can get some answers to why we're burning UFO effigies now and more. Steve works as an independent feature film screenwriter and producer. He is also an attorney with 25 years of experience practicing business, litigation, intellectual property, and entertainment law. Edmiston is a frequent teacher, advisor, and speaker on film and film industry issues. He has shown his films at a variety of festivals, including Palm Springs, Fort Lauderdale, SIF, Big Island Film Festival, Ashland, and Port Townsend. Edmiston wrote and directed the award-winning short film, the Day My Parents Became Cool, which was sought entirely in the South Puget Sound area. Steve, welcome so much to Night Drift. Well, hey, uh, thanks for that very nice and very kind introduction. Uh, good to be with you, Jim and Bex. Well, you know, we're really excited to have you. We have met in person a few months ago. You were so uh, kind to have us out to, to one of the events. Um, but but listen, before we get into it, you know, I want to know your relationship to this case. I want to know about how it happened for you and what's in store for some of these events that are going on. Uh, but but before we get into it, let's just let's just jump right into what we're talking about. June 1947. What was the Maury Island incident? Well, uh, the Maury, boy, this exciting story. And you're right. It's complicated, so we'll take it in little pieces. We'll take it in little bite sizes. I love it. Uh, Perfect. So June twenty, June twenty one. The basic Maury. When I give a talk on this, I always say I'll give you the whole story in one slide, and then you can go home and you'll pass the test. Um, um, <laughs> Maury Island uh, on June twenty one, nineteen forty seven. Uh, a man named Harold Dahl, who lived in Tacoma, uh, got in his boat, the North Queen, with his son Charles. And they hired two day workers off the dock in Tacoma. So there's four people on this 50-foot boat, uh, and they go out, uh, leave Tacoma. They travel about three miles until they're just off the East Bay of Maury Island. Um, and what they were doing there is they were scavenging logs. And this was something that you could do back in the 40s because, you know, the big log booms would travel down Puget Sound, and 
kind of like a, a cattle string from the herd. These logs sure. would spill off, and then people would make money capturing them again and returning them to the lumber companies. So that's what they were doing. And when they were just off Maury Island on June 21st, it was about 2 in the afternoon, uh, they saw six flying disks and they described in the sky, and they described those disks um, as shaped like donuts, hollow in the middle. And of the six disks, one of them was uh, appeared to be failing. It wasn't uh, operating like the others. It was much lower. And all of a sudden, a chaff-like material is alleged to have fallen. And it was right above their boat. Um, and, and the chaff wasn't a problem, but it was followed by an explosion. And the mm. explosion then released what they call like a lava-like material. Uh, and it's become shorthanded as slag in all mm. of the historical records. And I, you know, you've got to think about this because we can talk about it, uh, you know, and, 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 but if you, let's say we're making a film, this slag was so scary to them. What was falling on them, I think of it like a, the beach scene of Private Ryan. They took their 50-foot mm. boat, a huge boat, and chose to run it aground, to literally run that boat up on the beach so they could escape what was falling on them. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, and hide. They got off the boat. They hid in the cliffs that were just on that beach on Maury Island. But, unfortunately, uh, the slag had already allegedly burned uh, Charles Dolls, the son's arm, and had killed the family dog that was with them, Sparky. Um, so they were frightened. They get off the boat. They're injured. The boat is damaged. They're on the beach. They hide. Then the discs go away. And they're very frightened. They don't understand what they've seen. Um, and they kind of make this private commitment uh, not to talk about it, and they go home. And that's day one. That's June 21st. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the implications of that, you know, you're in 1947. You've just gone through this state, especially living in the Pacific Northwest, that, you know, the Japanese or someone could be flying through the sky dropping bombs at you at any minute, and all you're doing is preparing for such things, and maybe you're even in the war. And then you have these anomalous disks that appear, and they're shooting slag at you. There's explosions in the sky. It must have been an incredibly traumatic event for, for everyone involved. Well, and interestingly enough, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but this was sort of the first event in 1947 of thousands of sightings across the country and world that ultimately got were called the Summer of the Saucers. And, and this is 1947, and so we finished World War II – but we've just now figured out that, gee, we had this new enemy, and we're going to call it the Soviet Union. And your reference to sort of World War II it makes a lot of sense because what was going on now is, well, we have our old enemy, and that's over. But this thing called the Soviet Union, that's really frightening, and maybe things are flying over our heads. So while we can look at this as, you know, what did they see? Was it an alien? We're also thinking about uh, what's flying over our heads, um, and, and, and we're scared of that from a just a – technological standpoint we don't understand it so day one is incredibly traumatic for doll for his son for the, the allegedly some of the crewmen that were on his ship that day even though we don't know exactly who they are or, or if they were really there but um it, you know things get even more dramatic and weird for doll uh as days progress what what happens next for him and and can you detail a little bit about this visitor yeah, and, and it's, it's a fun way to talk about the story. So thanks for letting me do it that way, kind of in this sort of timeline, linear fashion. So we just talked about day one. Day two, the next day, June 22nd, June 22nd, 1947, um, 
Harold Dahl is at home at his house on Gove Street in Tacoma, and he gets a knock on the door, and it's around 6.37 in the morning. And there's a man at his door, and the man's arrived in a black 1947 Buick. The man's uh, dressed, according to the FBI documents that we've researched, dressed in a dark suit, uh, classic dark suit, black tie, white shirt, uh, the fedora hat, uh, everything that we now would consider a men in black. Um, at the door, this man uh, asks Harold, Harold um, we need to have a discussion about what you saw on the water yesterday. And mm. we probably shouldn't talk about it at your home. Uh, let's go to a diner in Tacoma, and we'll talk about it there. And uh, Harold agreed. Uh, they went to a diner in Tacoma. And at that diner, uh, the men in black, the man in the dark suit, um, proceeded to tell Harold everything that we just talked about that happened on June 21st. The men in black told Harold exactly what had happened on the water the day before, and then did what we have now come, you know, 75 years now later, we have come to expect from a man in black. That man delivered a warning to Harold. And the warning was, do not talk about what you've just seen. Bad things could happen to your family, to your business. Uh, just keep it to yourself. That classic men in black warning. And everything that we now know 75 years later, Every piece of the legacy that became the Men in Black film franchise, that became the X-Files, that became uh, Fringe, you know, all of this popular culture that we've developed, and these are multi-billion dollar industries, trace back to the June 22nd visit to Harold Dahl by an unidentified Men in Black who delivered a warning not to talk about a UFO sighting. Well, what's really interesting about this, too, aside from how captivating that account is and how well that lays the groundwork for the origin of what that phenomenon is, is that being from the Pacific Northwest, you know, we get an opportunity to kind of like hold, uh, hold this with a little bit of pride, right? Because for the longest time, when this case had nearly been swept under the carpet or forgotten, a lot of people would claim, and, and still do actually, frankly, that Perhaps the first appearance of the Men in Black were in John Keel's Mothman Prophecies. Or perhaps, no, actually, they're in this Gray Barker book, Albert Bender. Like, you know, th these are all things um, within, you know, sort of years later, decades later, after this account from Harold Dahl and the Maury Island incident. That That's spot on. I'm glad you raised that because... There's really a couple things that happened with this Maury Island story. And for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with it, scratching their heads going, this is a pretty amazing story. Why have I never hear, heard about this? One is that folks that later determined to tell an account of an encounter with the men in black uh, frequently did not credit Harold Dahl's earlier uh, account of the men in black uh, and, and probably – you know, and we talk about this a lot uh, as we do our work and have done for the last 10 years and did do with our movie. You know, they want to kick this whole story to the curb because of reporting uh, and a long, long, you know, 50 plus year narrative that Harold Dahl had confessed that this was a hoax. And mm. our research, and this is, you know, you know, this is my soapbox, and I apologize, Jim, but my soapbox. No, don't is, apologize. Uh, the, 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 Research that we've done, which is all FBI documents and Army Air Force documents 
that form the basis for our, our picture, um, all makes very clear that Harold Dahl's actual invention was this notion that he made the story up. In other words, he felt so up, he was so upset about bad things that did actually happen to him. A number of bad things happened to him during the summer of 1947. Um, and we can we can get into those, but they were bad things, and he was being ridiculed about you know claiming to have seen something. And by the time some terrible tragedies happened that I'm sure we'll circle back to, um, and the FBI was investigating actively Maury Island, he told the FBI investigating agents who were kind of like our agent Mulder, right? There are X Files in 1947. He Harold Dahl told them the things I saw actually happened. This is in the FBI reports. The things I saw actually happened. But I'm now going to invent a story that I made it up because I need – I would rather be accused of being a liar and a hoaxer than have mm. this ongoing set of bad things happen to me. None yeah. of that narrative, none of that actual historical you know, FBI document uh, uh, record was ever known to the general public until after 1997. When you know they released the 50-year uh, sealed records from the FBI, and then who would have even bothered to look? Because once you've dismissed something as a hoax, you kind of never return to it. And so it's been really fun for us as you know investigators and and local historians to really kick kick the tires and go, wait a minute, where everything we ever knew about Maury Island was wrong. It was all <laughs> wrong, and it's a much more interesting and important story than we thought. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, the, the story only gets weird, more weird, I should say, yes. in between Harold Dill's uh, confessions to both, uh, you, you know, sort of uh, the people around him, his wife that night and, you know, the FBA leader. So let's let's take a short break from from Dahl. And, you know, on June 24th, a couple days after he is met by this men in black, Something else occurs to a, a pilot, and this fundamentally changes our relationship to what we now know as the UFO. It, it presents us with what many, many still to this day would say is the first of the events of the summer of the saucer. Can you tell us a little bit about Kenneth Arnold on June 24th? Um, yes, Uh Kenneth Arnold is a really pivotal figure in this early, you know, sort of dawn of the modern UFO era. And, you know, he's a resident of Boise, Idaho. He is a experienced pilot. He's what we would call an incredibly credible witness. And uh, he is flying on June 24th uh, around or near Mount Rainier. And it's during this flight that he sees uh, nine objects in the sky. Uh, you know, unexplained uh, flying objects that uh, he's ha he has a great difficulty in describing. And, and Ken Arnold's sighting of these nine objects, which are in uh, subsequent interviews dubbed uh, flying saucers by a reporter, which is how we got the term. A reporter and Arnold are talking, and they're talking about, well, they kind of looked like the, the way they moved was if you took a saucer and you, uh, you flung it uh, and it skipped across the water. That flying saucer term was dubbed as a result of Ken Arnold's sighting of these nine objects. So Arnold becomes famous. I mean, in the summer after June 24, he becomes a lead figure um, in the summer of the saucers 
because he is so credible. Uh, and of course, you know, after Arnold's sighting, um, you know, uh, thousands of sighting occur, which I, I'm sure, <laughs> and I'll let you introduce it. There's one that happens just two weeks. So we often off with these things that we talk about them in isolation, in right. silos. But but they're not in silos. I mean, they're just not. So you know, uh, you know, just two weeks later, there's something very famous, right, Jim? That happens. Yeah. Yeah, and before we get to that, we're we're actually going to have yeah. to jump to a break. But uh, you know, okay. Ken Arnold, as as you said, like these things are all related, and Ken Arnold is going to become very re- related to the Maury Island incident. And we're going to go into that right after this break. And then we're also going to explore some of the events and some of the ways that Steve and Co are commemorating this very very strange series of events. We have to take a short break here on Night Drift. I'm Jim Perry. I'm with Bex Atwood who we haven't really brought into the show yet. But Bex, we got to get you in this uh, next segment. Okay, sounds good. We'll be right back here with more on Maury Island on Night Drift. into the night. Jim Perry is taking your calls at 425-373-5527 or toll free in Western Washington, 888-298-KKNW-5569. Don't fear the reaper, nor do the world. 
From west of the Cascades to the rest of the world, lines are open. Call 425-373-5527 or toll free in Western Washington, 888-298-5569. That's 888-298-KKNW. Drifting deeper into the night. Somewhere in time, we are searching for saucers in a post-war sky. The northern latitudes revealing nothing but the back of our own heads. <laughs> I'm Jim Perry, and this is Night Drift. Find us across social media at Euphemet and me at It's Jim Perry. And if you are listening to this live, the radio broadcast of the show, and want more, you can find all of this on the Euphemet podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit euphemet.com. I'm also here with Bex Atwood, liminal investigator and Euphemet reporter. We're talking to Steve Edniston about the Maury Island incident. You know, 1947, it's dubbed the Summer of Saucers, and for good reason. July 7th, 1947, Roswell, New Mexico is graced with an event when unearthed in the mid-90s changed the landscape of ufology in a way I think Maury Island can and will do soon. Okay, now we're back with Steve and we're talking about the Maury Island incident. When we left off, we were talking about Kenneth Arnold and his breakthrough sighting. The term flying saucer is dubbed based off of a misrepresentation of a description that he had of, of, of this object's movement throughout the sky. Very famously, um, that was later printed in Fate magazine, which was published by a Chicago publisher at the time, Ray Palmer, who factors into this story uh, in a way that directly involves Kenneth becoming an investigator of the Maury Island incident. Steve, welcome back to Night Drift. Good to be here. Having fun. Yeah, absolutely. This is great breaking this down and, and kind of going this through a, a, like a timeline, like we're <laughs> discovering a cold case here together with everybody listening at the same time. So um, take me back to that time now. Um, you know, uh, Kenneth Arnold is sitting there. He's one of the most famous people in America uh, it, overnight based off what he's experiencing and the subs- subsequent hundreds or thousands of reports flooding into newspapers across the country. And one Ray Palmer reaches out, right? and has a proposition for Kenneth Arnold. That is correct. Uh, Ray Palmer, actually at the time, he was working on uh, launching Fate magazine, and he was with Amazing Stories. Uh, and uh, and he's he's heard about uh, Ken Arnold fighting, but he's also heard about this Maury Island incident, and he thinks that he can, if he's lucky, hire this credible man, Ken Arnold, to investigate the Maury Island story, and then he can have this big exclusive uh, story about the Maury Island incident. So we, so uh, you know, uh, Ray Palmer hires Ken Arnold and says, you know, go go find the truth at Maury Island, and that's how Ken Arnold becomes sort of pivotal in the telling of the Maury Island story. Um, and what happens is. Uh, they set up a series of interviews uh, at the end of July in 1947. Um, and joining them, and this, I think, really reflects the credibility that Kenneth Arnold had, 
joining them and agreeing to conduct these interviews uh, as a collective are two uh, Army Air Force uh, intelligence officers, uh, Captain William Davidson and Lieutenant Frank Brown, who have also been asked to investigate Maury Island. Uh, and they're being asked to investigate Maury Island uh, uh, because we don't know what's flying over our skies in 1947. Again, it's this sort of Cold War mentality. Something's happening, and we have to know what this something is. And so there's this confluence of interested parties at the end of July 1947. They meet up at the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma. Uh, and they, uh, and you'll see in the documents, they even use the word interrogations. But there's a series of uh, of interviews. Uh, for some period of time, Harold Dahl is there. For some period of time, his uh, collaborator, colleague, a man named Fred Chrisman, who's infamous for other reasons, is there. There's a United Airlines pilot, uh, Captain E.J. Smith, is there. And so it's a very serious matter. These these interviews. Uh, they happen at the uh, last day of July uh, in 1947 at this hotel, and at the end of this interview, uh, the two pilots, uh, the Army Air Force officers, are provided uh, samples of what fell off the flying discs, uh, and they take those samples and they uh, return them to the, the, the McCord Airfield in Tacoma, where they had flown in for the interviews. And, you know, I guess in 1947, um, the Uber of 1947 was a B-25 bomber. Because these <laughs> <Naturally>. intelligence officers, <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, of course it was. So they're flying around the country, and, and their mo mode of transport is a B-25 bomber, surplus from World War II, obviously. So they return to McCord. Uh, they get on the B-25 bomber with the slag samples from Maury Island. They actually, and we've seen the records in the final mission report, they, they manifest that slag as top secret cargo and place it in what's called the navigator's kit. And, and they want to leave, and they leave like at 2 in the morning on August 1st. And the reason they do is that it's, it's the day that the Air Force splits from the Army. It's a very historically right. important day. And so they are going to go celebrate in San Diego. And they want to get out of Dodge. They want to get out of Tacoma. They have the top secret cargo. They take off from the airfield in Tacoma, and that flight makes it approximately 45 minutes until there is a spontaneous combustion. Mm. The left engine catches on fire. They have two passengers, and the pilots heroically get parachutes on them and get them out of the B-25 bomber. But the time that it takes to get those passengers out and they survive uh, – is too long for the pilots. They oh lose control gosh. of the aircraft and it crashes in the forests uh, east of Kelso, Washington, and yeah. the pilots perish. They are the first two fatalities in the history of the United States Air Force. And, and some could say the first two victims of the UFO conspiracy, right? Of, of the UFO it, movement. It's starts this, with a in bang. In the modern era, unequivocally, unequivocally, two deaths of investigators uh, attached to this story. 
Now, of course, at that point in time, it's almost sort of like exit stage left for Kenneth Arnold because as soon as people start dying, it's kind of like, hey, this is this is too much. I'm over my head. Like, let's get out of here. Some, you know, very interesting events occur to him on his way back home. But but real quick, we'll rewind just to tease this a little bit. Some of the things that we did not get into was sort of days of mysterious interactions between Kenneth Arnold and captain uh, the, the 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 captain that was joining him in these in in, in these investigations and in these interrogations uh, in these interviews and the mysterious Fred Christman but also sort of mysterious phone calls uh, these phone calls where they knew what was happening within the room um, right. high strangeness high paranoia and what I loved about your film uh, y- your film makes the decision. To, to very much focus on some central events while while acknowledging how complex the rest of that story is and going, you know what, Let, let's put that over there for later. <laughs> we let's, can't, let's just we talk can't about this stuff to people. We, we can't afford to shoot a B-25 bomber crash. That's the sound of our budget. <laughs> so we're not, we're, that's got to be a piece of paper on J. Edgar Hoover's desk, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And, and so to, to wrap up, uh, you know, the, the pivotal events of, of this timeline, uh, aside from all the high strangeness elements that one day, listen, we're going to, we're going to really break those down for people. Um, you know, the, the military, uh, the, the, the plane crashes and in comes uh, special agent Jack Wilcox with the FBI, correct? Right, right. And that is, uh, it, you know, we didn't use his name in the film, um, didn't need to and, and didn't want to, you know, in case there was any just privacy issues. Uh, sure. we, we used the name Agent Mitchell. But but our central character in the film, our film bookends with this notion of an FBI investigation, we thought, you know, why not? It really is the original X-File. Right. This is a, a lowly FBI agent. And, you know, and I say lowly because you couldn't be farther away from the power center of the FBI in 1947 than Tacoma, Washington. Right. right? I mean, you were right. a gulag. Right. And so you get on your desk the assignment of investigating the crash of a B-25 bomber domestically and all of the facts relating to the crash, why they were where they were, is a UFO story. I mean, this is the next file. And so Agent Jack Wilcox is assigned uh, to this investigation. And lucky for us as historians, I mean, set aside ufologists, I mean, just historians. Lucky for us, Agent Wilcox is a brilliant investigator and a <laughs> prolific writer. Yes. And a, and a fearless, fearless human because – in his investigation, as he is going day by day, and we can track because of the documents every single day from August 6, 1947 to August 27, his investigation and what he's saying and what he's reporting, um, he is meticulous. And this is the, the narrative that we've talked about it appears in these records um, because he's interviewed Dahl and he's interviewed Chrisman and he's interviewed everybody that's involved in the case, and he's kind of putting this narrative together. Uh, during this period of time, and and what's really important about him and why he's kind of our hero, and if you look at our movie, it opens with Wilcox and Hoover and it ends with Wilcox and Hoover, um, yeah. is that Wilcox has the courage to tell J. Edgar Hoover directly, and this is true, that Hoover is wrong in his conclusions, that Maury Island is not a hoax, and in fact – 
Dahl, Harold Dahl, did not admit that it was a hoax. They were all misinformed. This is all part of Harold's plan. And he literally has a teletype on August, um, I think it's August, oh gosh, I don't have the paper. I think it's August 14th that he responds to Hoover's teletype. And these are not like through a chain of command. These are two men talking directly to each other, which is amazing to me. This lowly field agent telling the director of the FBI at the height of his powers, you're wrong. You can't say that this was a hoax because he never confessed to that. In fact, he told us the opposite. Amazing stuff. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It really is, though. <laughs> Let me consider it. Oh, my gosh. Well, Steve, I actually have a question for you because you are obviously so knowledgeable about this and you've spent, you know, 10 plus years on this case. I'm curious of how this case came into your life and what that like siren call, if you will, was for you. Well, hey, hey Bex. I should apologize to Bex because I've been yammering so much. Um, I really, it's, it's good to talk to you. Um, and that's a fun oh, question. That's actually a fun question. You know, how do you, it's like the origin story, right? I mean, everybody, you know, how do you, so I, I would never consider myself a ufologist, um, you know, as a, as a pop culture junkie. You know, I love films about science fiction and UFOs and things, but I was never any kind of an investigator. But I literally, like so many of us, you know, sort of, you know, kicked a rock and inadvertently discovered something. I happen to live in a house that looks across Puget Sound right at Maury Island, right at the East Bay, right where this happened. I had lived there for nearly, what, 15 years, and I had never heard this story. <laughs> so I'm going wow. through my life in the, you know, feel, kind of like, like, like my house is next to Stonehenge. I didn't know what those rocks were, right? I mean, just crazy <laughs> that I didn't know this story. And my neighbor, I have a wonderful neighbor, Terry Donahue, and, and we kind of both learned uh, that this story existed the same day. We were at a coffee shop. And uh, some stranger, we kind of joke and call him our uh, our deep throat. Our, the stranger mentions this, and we're both kind of like, well, that's kind of a weird story. And I don't know who you are, and we'll just return to our coffee. It was just kind of a you know a moment. And uh, but I went home, got on the internet, and started looking at it. And as I peeled it away, I just couldn't believe the story. And as a screenwriter, as someone who likes to discover, you know, stories that maybe have this truth to them. And especially lost stories, you know, a great story that for whatever reason, history just kicked to the curb, just just got buried. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and then you start peeling it away. That's a treasure hunt. I mean, for me, I just I just couldn't let it go. And, and so the first thing we did was we started this community event because I'm like, if I think it's cool that I live, you know, next to Maury Island, I look at it every day. I think all my neighbors should also think that's cool. Now, maybe that wasn't true, right. but that was how I thought about it. So we threw an <laughs> annual party called Burn It. We started, we started a party. We throw it outside every year. Um, and, uh, it call, you know, it's all about telling the tale of Maury Island to people in our neighborhood that didn't know it. And we, then we kind of jokingly started burning an effigy of a flying disc at the end. And we call it Burning Saucer. Um, and, you know, sort of a little bit of a rip on Burning Man. Um, and it just kind of took off. People just loved the history. You know, it wasn't just a party. It wasn't just a burning. But it sort of organically connected a lot of dots. 
and this party just, you know, we had this party. We're looking at Maury Island. We tell the tale. We do some fun stuff, and then it ends with a burn, and that has really taken off. So the very first one, the very first burning saucer, there was a man there that I knew a little bit, and he comes up to me afterwards. His name is Scott Schaefer, and he goes, and he's a director uh, uh, in the Directors Guild, and he goes, this is one of the best stories I never heard before. We got to make a movie, and that's mm-hmm. the start, Vex. That's how we, mm-hmm. that's how we got together, and uh, decided to raise some money and at least make our short film, our thirty-minute short film, the Maury Island Incident. Wow. Oh, hi to Scott if you're listening. He would. We were hoping he may join us. We had the pleasure of meeting him as well at the event a couple months ago, and he is a hoot. <laughs> he is a but hoot. It's... He's a great interview. He's a hoot. So when you guys do part two, and you know, the funny part, when we talk about this, you guys, we were always like telling the story and then go, and then we always stop and go, okay, but now it gets weird because every stage <laughs> has got a level of weirdness. And then you go, okay, but now it gets weird. And what we, what I love about it is everything we do has a historical um, foundation. You know, yeah. the, the records, we're just so lucky that we have all these records that we can point to and say, we may not know what happened, but we know things happened. People died. Yeah. Edgar Hoover was personally involved. I mean, just like the, the stuff that is indisputable is such an amazing story. Um, that's why it's like it can't be forgotten. And that's, that's the mission. You know, Bex, you asked the question. The mission is I'm not trying to personally convince anybody of what it was that happened, but I'm trying to convince people this is a story worth knowing because the story is just so damn good. Wow. Yeah. It's so true, though. And speaking of, like, the historic roots, um, there's one about the Murray Island incident, or I guess the events after, really, uh, that really boggled my interest. Um, And it would be so historically significant if we were able to find it. Um, But do you personally believe that there is still some slag out there just waiting to be discovered? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, There was... uh... Uh, there was a um, well. Let me let me say in the film, in our actual film, Memorial Island Incident, um, we had a. Uh, you'll see in a scene between Agent Wilcox and J. Edgar Hoover that they uh, that Wilcox, the agent, presents a sample of slag recovered at Maury Island. And while that's a highly cinematic, while the actual personal meeting between the two is uh, you know a, a fiction. Um, they actually were communicating, um, and this piece of slag, um, this piece of slag that we use in the movie, was actually a piece of slag allegedly recovered by a man named Elmer Fromback, um, huh. who lived on Maury Island. And when we were making the film, and this happens when you're making a film and you get some news stories and media coverage, and you know people will come forward and say, "Hey, I know something. Be interested in something." Elmer came forward, and they used to camp on the beach at Maury Island. They had heard this story. They knew the story. They would go and camp overnight as a family. And he found this piece, and he gave us a declaration because uh, I'm like a lawyer. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, uh, and he found this. It's, it's, a, it's a dark obsidian-like uh, material, so it was clearly once a, a liquid. And uh, he had come forward and said, we found, we found these in the trees. Wow. So, ima- I mean, you know, now, <laughs> okay, okay, 
you know, here's somebody coming forth, giving a, pen, a, a, a declaration under penalty of perjury that as a kid he's camping, they're finding, you know, you know, uh, hardened slag-like material that they can just pop out of a, you know, a knot in a tree, which obviously infers it fell from the sky. Right. We right. were so, I mean, that's amazing, right? Now, uh, you know, uh, so that, um, that little, those kind of things are so exciting to sort of play with, and they, he was very generous. He lent it to uh, the Museum of the Mysteries, uh, 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 Charlotte Lefevre uh, and Philip Lipson, and that's how we kind of had access to it, and we asked permission. We are like, hey, we can get a prop, but wouldn't it be cool to use Elmer Fromback's slag that was actually found <laughs> in the trees? So back to your question, Beck. Sorry about the big detour there. Um, yeah, would be fun to look. Now, we suspect that, you know, if you're thinking about could you recover things from underwater, you know, uh, anybody that knows Puget Sound tidal action would suggest it could be anywhere and everywhere. You know what I mean? If it was deposited in 1947, the notion of where it would be, it'd be, some, you know, very uh, difficult. But if I was on that beach, and by the way, it's a great hike. It's well worth doing. Um, fun hike down from the bluff down to the beach. You know, walk among the magnolia trees and look for slag in the trees. Why not? Yeah, right, right. I mean, it's fascinating. That was a great detour, by the way. And I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, don't don't apologize. And I'm glad you mentioned Charlotte and Philip. Of, of course, they're known for a, a great museum that was up on Capitol Hill for ages, and, and a really awesome book, The Maury Island UFO Incident: The Story Behind the Air Force's First Military yep. Plane Crash. A, a great a great book with also incredible photos and and timeline. And Steve, you know, we're talking about like ways that we can commemorate and memorialize and spread this story to people that don't quite know of it yet. And you're doing just that with a group of like-minded folks uh, doing all these sorts of events this week. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's coming up later this week? Sure. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, now I feel like I'm a movie person on a late night talk show and I get to pl plug my project, right? Is that That's right. that moment? I appreciate that very much. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, coming up on Wednesday night in Des Moines at a wonderful venue right on the water called the Quarter Deck is uh, the first annual, because we've done this other event, Burning Saucer, 10 years in a row. Um, this is the first annual sort of public event, and it's called 622. How clever, because <laughs> what it really is focused on is that day two of the Maury Island story, the Men in Black appearance. So 622 is all about uh, commemorating and remembering and having fun with the notion that this local Pacific Northwest story, that everything that has come since is the legacy of this you know, June 22nd, 1947 story by Harold Dahl. You know, whether it's true or not, let's just, you know, set aside being excited about the nuance of truth. It is true <laughs> that he told the story, right? Yeah. Well, listen, yeah. uh, as, as a couple of people that deal with witness experiencer stories all day, every day, sometimes that is the most important element. Um, whether the, the truth we hold is in some sort of 3D reality that is consensus or not, you know, who knows? We all beg that question. Um, but, Steve, thank you so much for, for spending time with us on Night Drift tonight. We look forward to seeing you later this week. And, and lastly, can you tell everyone where to find you and where to find your work? Sure. Um, 
I have a company, and all my creative work is at quadrant45.com. So that's one word, quadrant number 45, quadrant45.com. If you open that up, you're going to see all kinds of projects. You're going to find Maury Island in the film. You're going to find uh, Burning Saucer. You're going to find 622. So lots of an easy way to get information there. Um, if you want to watch the film, uh, go to the Maury Island Incident uh, .com, uh, site, and and then there's a link to the Vimeo, and and that's how you get access to the film. And uh, and thank you, thank you so much to Bex and to Jim for letting me talk about it. You could tell I have fun talking about this story, and then I get worked <laughs> up. And we're gonna have a and and 622 is gonna be a great party. We sold it out, but next year uh, it's gonna be big. Uh, I think we're going to get a lot of good interest and it's going to be much larger and we'll have to, uh, and, a whole, and you two are coming. So you're going to know, you'll be able to tell the truth. You'll be the truth tellers. Is it a good party yeah, or not? That's right. That's right. We'll come back on the air. <laughs> we'll tell the truth about it. 622. It's going to be a fun time and it was fantastic chopping it up with you. Bex, before we close, tell everybody where to find your stuff. Yes, I am Bex, B-E-X, in the liminal across the board, and I am weirdo number three of Liminal Earth. You can find us at liminal.earth. All right, everyone. Thank you again for listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry on Alternative Talk, KKNW, 1150 AM Seattle, or the Euphemet feed. You can hear the show anytime on its podcast feed, wherever you listen to them. Go to euphemet.com for more and join us next Sunday. And until then, keep looking up. Jim Perry on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.